Hey, let me just say, too, for the, the whole thing for kids' camps, if you don't have kids that are going to kids' camp, but you have little kids, see, if you start paying now, you're going to be ready when your kids go. I just put a plug in. So just start stroking that check every summer for a child. And so when your kids are old enough to go, then you'll, you'll be financially used to that. So come on, we want to be a generous church. And we want to, so you know, some families, they might have three kids that they're trying to get to camp. And so it can be a struggle. So we're just hoping that even if it's just $50, come on, we want to be a church that's doing for others oftentimes what they can't do for themselves financially. And I'm telling you, those weeks at camp are definers for people's lives. And so even the Beef O'Brady's, buy those tickets. Even if you can't come, we want all of our kids to be able to go. So, you know, last, last weekend I was, I was joking about polyester leisure suits. Remember that? If you weren't here, you've got to hear that joke. So Dan Pothier brought me his. So what do you think? Yeah, it looks pretty good. You like that? So, so Dan... When, when, when he and Donna were married, he wore this suit as they were leaving for their honeymoon. He put on this suit. It was 30, how many, 36? 37 years ago. And so, I know, come on. Come on. All right, I'm going to take this off now because I know it's scary for you. How many of you wore a polyester leisure suit at some point in your life and not for a costume party, right? Not for a costume party. I know, yeah. One day they're coming back in. And Dan's going to be ready. Dan's going to be ready. All right, so that's going to be my giveaway. Got a, a $10 gift card to Fridays for Dan for bringing in. Come on. He came up right at the end of the service last weekend and said, oh, I have one of those suits that you were talking about. And I joked about green ones, and his was green. How great is that? So he said, I'm going to bring it next week. I said, all right, if you bring it, I'm going to put it on. So it's good. Well, we're excited for this series that we're in 50-Day People where we're answering the question, what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in a modern-day world? One of my new favorite TV shows is Swamp People. Anybody here like to watch Swamp People? Come on. Shoot him. Shoot him. Right? Everybody, all of our kids have their own impersonation that they do. It's, a, it's these people that, 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 that live down off the, off the Gulf, and, and, uh, and, and, and they earn most of their living hunting and harvesting alligators. Alligator season is about, about 30, uh, 30 days every year, and so they're out every day. It's just it's hilarious, hilarious. So, so we were watching the show the other night, and our kids were like, remember when we went to Alligator World in Myrtle Beach? I'm like, oh, I remember. Vanessa, do you remember? We all looked at her, right? So we went a few years ago. Our kids were really little. Went to Myrtle Beach. I, I don't know if it's called Alligator World, but there's some theme park there where it's all about alligators, live alligators. So you're not too far into the park. We're walking through, and you see this cage, and there's an alligator in there that's got to be at least 15 feet long, and it looks like it probably weighs about 1,500 pounds. It is ginormous, right? It was something right out of prehistoric days. And so we're all standing there, and Vanessa's like, that's not real, right? I kid you not, hand through the fence, poking it. No, I'm telling you the truth. Poking it. It's not real. We were like, I don't, th I think that's a real alligator. I don't think it doesn't feel real, right? See, so I ran inside the fence, pushing this thing around. It's huge. So we're walking away and she's like, that's not real. You guys are chicken, right? She's telling our kids, come here, Claire, put your hand. No, she didn't say that. I'm making that part up. You got to embellish it a little bit, right? Oh, so here's the best part of the story. Later on in the day, we're at a show, the same place, and the person gets the microphone, steps up on the platform and says, hey, if you haven't seen anything, if you, don't, if you don't see anything else for the rest of the day, you've got to at least go by and see the exhibit. We have the largest living alligator in captivity right here. Yeah. I was like, honey, is that the one that you were shoving around through the fence, right? 
So the color, you could see, just left her face, right? Not the kind of memory that you want to make on your, on your vacation. How did you lose your arm again? <laughs> Alligator World, Myrtle Beach. Didn't you used to have three kids? Where are they? No. So why am I telling you that story? Because for many of us, that's our story. The supernatural side of who God is, we live our lives and we say, that's not real. That's not real. I see it. I touch it. I've been around it, but I don't think it's real. I don't think it's real. And maybe for some of you here tonight, you're willing to say it's real. I believe it's real, but it really needs to stay in a cage where it does, has no access to me, where I can keep a safe distance from the part of God that I can't control. And maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure, Fred, I like the idea of you comparing God to an alligator. I do. Because I want there to be a dangerous side to who God is. If he is the sovereign creator of the universe, I want there to be a side to him that frightens me. And I want that part of who God is to be absolutely free in my life, consuming and destroying everything that does not belong there. I want that part of God to be at work deep inside of me, and I want him to be deep inside of this church and in each of you, even if it frightens you just a little bit. It's part of what this series is about. What does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in a modern-day world where we're, we're, we're hitching our wagon theologically? Come on to this verse in Mark 10, 27. It says, Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it's impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with him. If ever we were to give an answer for what does it mean to be Pentecostal, it means that we still believe that God can do anything. So this is our definition. It's not complicated. To have an unshakable belief that God still makes the impossible possible. To have an unshakable belief that God still makes the impossible possible. And we want to be a church where other people from the outside looking in are asking the question, how is that even possible? All the imagery that you're going to see in the media throughout this series, right? We've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks is about running and marathons springing off of Dan Carnazes, the who's nicknamed the marathon man, because at some point in his life, he ran 50 marathons in all 50 states in 50 consecutive days. And we hear that and we say, that's impossible. That should be the impact with our faith in Christ that we should be having on the world around us. To the degree that we love the unlovable, to the degree that we're generous with everything that we have, to the degree of our commitment and our devotion to the church that we call home. That's how we open up the series, talking about impossible gathering. And most certainly when it comes to the supernatural power of God at work in our lives. Because Mark 10, 27 isn't just supposed to be a verse that you believe for other people. It's supposed to be a verse that you believe for yourself. So these are the questions we're going to work through tonight. This is part two of Impossible Power. We did an introduction to this sermon uh, last week in Impossible Power, talking specifically about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that you read about in Acts chapter 2. And so we're going to pick up, if you weren't here last weekend, you can get that on the podcast. You can go back and hear part one. So these are the five questions we're going to work through, and then we're going to come back to a time of worship and prayer at the end of the service. So these are the questions. Is it different from my vow of devotion to Jesus, this experience called the baptism? In the Holy Spirit? Is it something that I should expect and pursue? 
What about this idea of maybe I've been around people that it seems though they've not been in control of themselves. Well, I lose control of myself. Spiritual language is not for everyone. And the last one is, what about this idea of if I can't understand what I'm saying, what's the point? Come on, are you ready? We're going to work through all five of those. All right, here we go. Is it different from my vow to Jesus? This experience that we opened last weekend with when we were reading in the book of Acts in the second chapter where the, the 120 people were gathered together in the upper room and then the, the Spirit of God was just unleashed in that place and they left that place different than when they came in and the church was built around their lives. Is that moment, is it for you? And we're going to talk about that tonight, but more importantly, we're answering the question, is that moment different is it different from the place where we began with communion of making a vow of devotion to Christ? All right, so we're going to turn to Scripture. We're going to answer that question for ourselves. John 20, 22. This is an important moment. This is the weekend of Jesus' resurrection. He's already died on the cross. He's raised himself from the dead. He comes into the room where the disciples are praying and gathered together, and he begins to interact with them and teach them and talk with them. And then something dramatic happens. It says he breathed on them. And right here recorded for us in the Gospel of John, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now that act was significant to the people that were gathered in that room because they had been grown up their whole lives studying the scriptures, which for then were just the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And in the beginning of the story of creation, we see that God creates Adam from the dust of the earth. And what does he do to give him life? He breathes on them. So this moment where Jesus breathes on them, it would have stirred great excitement and great anticipation for everybody in the room because they knew that they were physically alive, but they were about to be made spiritually alive. And they will probably remember the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus about three years before when he said to Nicodemus, unless the person be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So all of a sudden they realize everything that Jesus has been teaching about for these last three years, it's about to happen to me. And every person in that room took their first spiritual breath. The Spirit of God came alive inside of everyone who was there. Everyone. For the next 40 days, Jesus begins to appear, what we call post-resurrection appearances. In a spiritual state, he appears to people for the next 40 days. And at his ascension... So he ascended back into heaven. He said to them, it's recorded for us in the first chapter of Acts, do not leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Now, he also gave them another important command, right? When he ascended into heaven, it's called the Great Commission, where he said, go into all the world, baptizing, right? In the name of the Father and of the Son, teaching them all the things that I've taught you. You know, that's where he said, I'm going to be with you to the ends of the earth. All the authority has been given to me. This is great speech he gives. I'm going to send you out into the world to build my church. But then he says, but I don't want you to go yet. I want you to wait. So if Jesus is willing to postpone the great commission for some encounter that they're supposed to have with God, how much more do you and I need that same encounter in our lives if we're going to fulfill the destiny and the purpose that God has spoken over to our lives? He could have caused what happened in Acts chapter 2 to happen in that moment 40 day, 50 days prior. He could have done it 50 days prior. At the moment of his ascension, right, he could have given the great commission, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit could have come in that moment, but it didn't happen that way. And everything that God does, he does with great intentionality. 
It wasn't because his agenda was mixed up or he didn't have the right schedule or he didn't get the change texted to him at the last minute, right? It's because in history itself, Jesus was trying to say to the world, your first spiritual breath is different. What happens in John 20, 22 is different from what happens in Acts chapter 2. So he separates it. He separates it by 50 days to put a marker in time so that we would never have to be confused about these being two distinct experiences. The Feast of Pentecost, you can listen to it to, to the first sermon in the series, Impossible Gathering, where we explained how Jesus was crucified at the Feast of Passover and the church was born at the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost means the 50th day, and so that feast was named because it was 50 days after Passover, and that's the moment that the Holy Spirit comes in such a dramatic way. He spread them out because he wanted us to always know the answer to the question, is it different? Is it different from my first spiritual breath? Randy Hurst, he's a theologian with the Assemblies of God. This is a great quote. It says, we don't get more of God at the moment we're baptized in his spirit. He gets more of us. It's a great quote, isn't it? At the moment that you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you get all of who God is right there in that moment. All of who, God does not apportion himself out in pieces. So at the point that you make a vow of devotion to Christ, come on, Jesus stands in front of you just like he stood before the disciples 2,000 years ago. He breathes on you just like he breathed on them. And he says, receive the Holy And all of who God is comes alive inside of you. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, that you've given all of who you are to him. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? This idea of the Spirit of God at live and at work inside of us. And from that day forward, the Holy Spirit is working to become the most dominant influencer of your will, to be the loudest voice that's speaking deep into your heart about how you respond in every situation that you're going to ever be in, thoughts that you allow to pass through your mind, choices, things you're going to do, things you're not going to do. We're supposed to live a life, right? In the book of Galatians, Paul talks about a life that is led by the Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which the disciples experienced in Acts chapter 2, I like to call it a spiritual chiropractic experience. They already had all of who God is because he breathed on them in John 20, 22. But there was a spiritual aligning that needed to take place. That's why we talk about the first encounter we have, what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we just experience one time in our lives because how, how many of you know you keep getting out of alignment, right? You keep making mistakes. You keep making bad decisions. And so we keep coming back to the throne of grace and the Holy Spirit is poured out onto our lives. It's like going to the chiropractor and he just gets you in the right alignment all over again. But there's a first time that you have that kind of experience. And we believe, come on, that for some of you tonight, it could be there waiting for you. It's a great gift that he wants to give to us. All right, number two, is it something that I should expect and pursue? So you might be here and say, Fred, well, in looking at those scriptures and thinking about what you're saying, I can see that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is different from a person's vow of devotion to Christ. I can see that based on those scriptures that you looked out, but I'm not sure it's for me. Maybe it's for other people, but is it really something that I should expect, something that I should pursue. So in Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, it says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms. It doesn't say baptism. It says baptisms right in the text. So we know when the book of Hebrews was written during the first century, there was a there was a fundamental, means it was just one of the basics 
that there were many kinds of baptisms that people who were disciples of Christ had an expectation of being a part of their lives. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. So in Acts 2.38, it's a verse that refers to the moment where we step into the waters of our baptisms that signify the vow of devotion that we've made to Christ. It's, I'm just telling you, if you weren't planning to come to the picnic, you should come just because of the moments of the water baptisms. You're, there is nothing like it on this earth. As people wade out into those waters, it, it's powerful. And we're all gathered as a church right there on the banks of the river. Oh, I'm telling you, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Acts 2.38, water baptism. These are the four baptisms that's referring to the writer of Hebrews. 1 Corinthians 12.13 talks about being baptized into the church. What does that mean? It means that when you make a decision to become a devoted follower of Christ, that Scripture speaks to us about finding a church, a local church that we can call home. And here Paul talks about being baptized in the church. It's not talking about a water baptism, but it's saying that you live your life immersed in a spiritual community. Baptism is baptizo in the Greek. It means to be made fully wet. So Paul's saying you've got to immerse yourself. Don't just be an attender. Don't just be a casual. I'm going to show up every now and again when there's a potluck dinner, right? That I'm going to immerse myself. I'm going to immerse myself in the community of the faith. And then in Matthew 3, 11 through 12, this one's often misunderstood. It's where John the Baptist says that the one who comes after me is going to baptize you with fire. He's not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as you continue to read in that chapter, you begin to realize that, that John there is talking about persecution. He's talking about it's the dangerous side of who God is, right? That he will lead you into difficult hardships because it's in that place that your character is formed like no other. That's the baptism of fire. It's the baptism of trials. It's the baptism of difficulties. Even people that don't believe in God, if you were to tell them that you were water baptized, they would not think that you were odd. They wouldn't. They might not believe in it or agree with it, but they're not going to think that you're strange. If you're a person that's passionate about your church, right, even people that don't believe in God, they're just going to say, hey, that's great for you, but it's not for me. But they're not going to think that you're strange. They're not going to think that you're odd. Well, you might be odd, but not because of that. And if you were to say, you know what, I really think that, I really think that God, you know, he, he leads me into difficult situations because it's a, a place where my character is tried and, and tested. Something is formed in me in difficult times. I'm telling you, people that don't even believe in God, if you were to say all of those three things to them, they would not think you odd or peculiar, right? But if you were to say, you know what, I was at church over the weekend and, and, and during a time of worship, I just felt so overwhelmed with the Spirit of God and I, and I began to speak in a language, I don't even know what I was saying. They would say, whoa, hey. That's a little bit strange, right? So at some point in history, we don't know when, at some point in history, the four baptisms that Scripture te teaches about, three of them were accepted as okay and normal, but this one, it's just been left behind. So as a church, what we want to say is, hey, let's bring the fourth baptism over here with the other three, and even though they are supernatural, they don't have to be something that's so mystical that we don't understand what Scripture says to them. We want to be a church that brings clarity. What does it mean? What does it mean? And what does it mean for me personally? Acts 2, 39, this is when Peter was giving the very first sermon to the very first church. And he said, this promise, this baptism of the Holy Spirit that they had all just witnessed, that we read through that text together last week. And then he said, it is for you, it is for your children, and it is for all who are afar off. What does that mean? Peter was saying it's for every generation to come every generation. 
There are scores of people in Christian churches around the world that believe that what happened in Acts chapter 2 was real, but they don't believe it's for us today. But right there, right there in the text, Acts 2.39, Peter says it. Hey, this gift is not supposed to cease. It's for you, it's for your children, and everybody far off for every successive generation to come until Christ returns. This is a promise that he has for you. In Luke 24, 28 through 31, we're not going to read that, but it's a great story. It's the story of the two men that were on the road to Emmaus. It's if everybody, anybody ever been on an Emmaus walk? Come on, it's a powerful encounter. That, that journey is based on this story. Two men, it was after Jesus had raised himself from the dead. They were on their way to Emmaus and Jesus appears to them. They did not recognize it was him. He kind of hid himself. We don't know how. He might have had on a green polyester leisure suit. We're not sure. But they didn't recognize him, right? And so they're walking all the way to Emmaus, and they're trying to tell this man they don't know to be Jesus everything that's happened over the last several days. So they get to Emmaus, the place where they were going, and they sat down to eat, and all of a sudden Jesus enables them to have a revelation of who he is. Then he speaks to them, he gives them a command, and then he disappears right out of the little cafe where they were sitting. Come on, that's impossible, isn't it? the supernatural side to who God is. I'm sharing that story with you as we're talking about this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it's a powerful picture for you and I that Jesus is the one who brings revelation to our hearts, to things that maybe feel hidden from us, things that we don't understand. Would you be willing to take a chance that Jesus is still the revealer today and that he wants to sit with you and, and just pull the scales from your eyes? And help you begin to see all the things that you should have great expectation for in your life, not just in the lives of other people. All right, number three. What about losing control of myself? After the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to lose control of yourself, at least not anymore that you're already not in control of yourself, right? If you're already a little bit loosey-goosey, then you're just probably going to still remain that way. Which is part of the problem with Pentecostalism in our modern day world is that we've been in churches where things have been out of order and out of control, right? And then so we think that's the work of God. Well, they might be having a genuine encounter with God, but the weird part of who they are, they had that even before they encountered him. You with me? And so, so when you see people, it's important that we're not judging them, we're not judging the sincerity of the experience that we're happening, that they're, that they're having, having, wow, Having, that's not really a hard word, is it? But there should not be something inside of us that is afraid to say, God, I don't want to have anything to do with that part of who you are because I don't want to be like that person. God says to you, I don't want you to be like that person either. I've been working on that person for years now, and they just won't change. There's nothing. People are weird, but God's not weird. And a lot of the eccentric things that you've seen throughout your life and services that were out of control had nothing to do with God. It just had everything to do with people. 1 Corinthians 14, 32 says, take your turn. No one person taking over. Then each speaker gets a chance to say something special from God. And you all learn from each other. If you choose to speak, if you choose to speak, you're also responsible for how and when you speak. So people that say, well, I just couldn't help it. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that gives you permission to not help it. Come on. When we worship the right way, God doesn't stir us up into confusion. He brings us into harmony. Oh, come on. 
I've been in churches where the people that are the most esteemed as being spiritually attuned are the people that are most out of control, and it just makes you wonder if they've ever read Galatians 5, 22 through 23 that talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and the last one is self-control. So if you're under the control of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing about Him if you've completely given yourself that's going to place you in a position of being out of control. If anything, the most spiritually mature people should be the ones who are most in control of themselves, even in moments where they're having deep supernatural encounters with God, the creator of the universe. So I shared my story again. You can listen to the podcast where I experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit in in March of, of 1991. So that night when I went home, I, I went to bed and, and I dreamt that night, I dreamt that night that I worked for the Christian Children's Fund then, the Child Sponsorship Agency, and there was a McDonald's right across the street from the Christian Children's Fund that I kept in business. And so I went there right through the drive through b- before work, as I always did in my dream, right? In my dream. And as I pulled up to the box and they say, right, and you can't understand what they're saying. And I know that I'm supposed to say what I want to eat. And when I open my mouth in my dream, in my dream, I could only speak in the spiritual language, no matter how hard I tried to speak in English, right? And I'm thinking, oh, no, what has happened to me, right? So I'm trying to muddle through my order. I give up. I drive on. This is in my dream. I get to work. I get on the elevator. My boss gets in and says, hello, what do you got going on today? And so I'm trying to carry on this conversation with Bonnie Campbell. That was her name. And in my dream, all I could do was speak in spiritual language, right? So God has got a crazy sense of humor, right? Hey, he's going to sleep tonight. Let's have some fun with this guy right here. God in lighthearted ways oftentimes deal with, deals with our fears. So then I wake up that morning, I'm laughing. I'm laughing from my dream. Who, any dreamers in here, right? Come on. I can't wait to go to bed every night. It's like going to the movies. It's like going to the movies. I love it. What am I going to dream about tonight? So I wake up that morning. I wake up that morning and I'm laughing because God is saying, hey, I am never going to do anything that would cause you to not be in control of yourself. I'm not into demeaning people. That's not who I am. That's not what I do. When you turn to 1 Corinthians 14, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to read out of here a little bit. 1 Corinthians 14. This is a text that's often used to talk about why spiritual language is not something that should happen in churches. And so let's read it together and talk about why that's not what Paul intended. It says, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other languages, he's talking about spiritual language here. Some people call it tongues. We don't use the word tongues because tongues is an ancient word for language, right? So if you're in an airport and you hear people speaking a language you don't recognize, you don't say, what tongue is that? You say, what language is that that you're speaking? And so we're trying to modernize the, the wording a little bit. So language is the word that we like to use, spiritual language, because that's the language that, or the nomenclature that people can understand. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other languages and people who were uninformed or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So people will use this text to say you shouldn't allow spiritual language to happen in a church because it's going to be off-putting and confusing to people. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says here, if everybody in the room has a message that they're bringing from God in a spiritual language all at the same time, If people were to come into that type of setting, they're going to say, you must be crazy. You with me? you got to remember the context of all the verses that are being written. So Paul is writing this letter to the church of Corinth because they are out of control. And he's trying to bring them back into a place of order. He's trying to bring them back into a place that's God-honoring. And so what he's saying is a gift that God intended to be a great sign to unbelievers, the supernatural 
outworking of the Holy Spirit for spiritual language that even a work that is supposed to help people see that there must be a God, if you use it in the wrong way, it actually has the opposite effect. He's saying to them, hey, what you're doing is good, but you're doing it all in the wrong way and it's being counterproductive. Don't let that happen in your church. Goes on to verse 24. But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes in and he is convicted by all and is judged by all, the secrets of his hearts will be revealed, and as a result, they will fall down on his face. He will fall down on his face and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. He talks about in that text about prophecy primarily being a sign for the believer. And what does that mean? It means that the, the work of the prophetic is usually declaring the will of God for someone's life. So someone who's not a believer, they don't care about the will of God. You with me? The, the work of the prophetic is often for the believer. That's what Paul's talking about here because it's about declaring God's will for your life. But he's saying, hey, he's giving himself to exaggeration a little bit here. If you study Paul's writing, he, he uses this technique of communication. He's saying if you're going to be excessive about something, Be excessive about prophecy because even then there's the opportunity because you're speaking in a language that they can understand with their earthly mind. At least then in your excess, you create the opportunity for God to do something good. That's the understanding of that text. That's the understanding of what Paul is saying here where he's writing to the church of Corinth. Spiritual language is a part of, should be a part of all of our lives and it should most certainly be a part of all of our services when we gather together. So author Larry Kreider that we like, he's got a series called Biblical Foundations. It says, some sincere believers have told me they hear negative things about spirit-baptized people, so have I. But we live by the word of God, not by other people's experiences. We may see something happen in the name of the Holy Spirit that may not be the Holy Spirit at all and think if that's the Holy Spirit, I want nothing to do with that. But we cannot throw out the baptism of the Holy Spirit because of what we saw or experienced that was not authentic. Come on, it's good. All right, number four. Is spiritual language for everyone. So maybe you're, you're, you're here tonight and you're saying, you know what, Fred, I can, I can see that now that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is different from my vow of devotion to Christ. And, 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 and based on the scriptures that we're looking, I can see this is something that I should hope for, that I should expect. I should live my life with a prayer that says, God, I want everything that you have for me. And I realize now I don't have to worry about being out of control. That's not what this thing is about. But, but this idea of the spiritual language part, that, that's the part I'm not sure I want to experience the fullness of the Spirit of God being the the dominant influencer of my will, but I'm not sure this this spiritual language part, that's for me. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. So this is 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30. The Bible talks specifically about spiritual language being used in three very distinct ways. 1 Corinthians 12, 29 through 30 says, there is the person, this is not the verse, but this is me restating what that verse says. There is the person whose primary gift to the body of Christ is a prophetic ministry of declaring a message from God that must be accompanied by an interpretation. This might not be your calling. Everybody has a certain calling that you're supposed to give yourself to in the body of Christ and the family of God. And for some people, they're called to move in prophetic ways and oftentimes for them in a prophetic moment where they're bringing a message that they feel like God is speaking to their heart that they then deliver to the congregation. Sometimes it's with a spiritual language and in those moments, because it's a communication from God to people, that should always be accompanied by an interpretation. The conference that we went to, Pastor Justin and I, up in Lima, New York, there was a general session where the president of Elam Fellowship at the microphone gave a, a prophetic word in a spiritual language and there was a woman there who's, who's, who's she's a seasoned lady and she's respected for her prophetic ministry in the churches up in that area. And she brought an interpretation. It was a powerful moment. 
in that conference. A powerful moment. And that might not ever happen to you your entire life because that might not be your gifting and calling. Paul talked, we might get into that this summer, all the different gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Then there's another one here, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. There are moments when people are compelled by God to be an instrument of his being manifested to the world. This may not happen to you. Meaning that it might not be your calling to do it all the time, but every one of us is a candidate for God to work through a supernatural if God is trying to bring a person into a revelation that God is real. And sometimes that could be through the use of spiritual language with an interpretation. It might not define your primary function in the church, but God could use you in a moment such as that. We call them the manifestational gifts, this, this list that's right here in 1 Corinthians 12. So Pastor Tanya, Vanessa's youngest sister, her and Christoph, are, were just said and recently as the lead pastors up at Christian Life Center, the church that, that planted us. And she's got a great story of years ago. She was in, I think it was a Starbucks. Some, I think it was a Starbucks. It was a coffee shop in the area. And she's checking out. And there was a musician that was playing on the stage. And God spoke to her heart and said, I want you to go tell that person on the platform that I love them. It's very distinct, right? So this is what we would call a word of knowledge, that God is giving her, it's in the list in 1 Corinthians 12, a, a, a message that she's supposed to bring to this person who's a complete stranger, right? So she's like, all right, God, right? You're the boss. If this person needs to hear that, that you love them, I'm going to go do it. So on her way out, she walks over and says, hey, I'm Tanya, and, and uh, I, just, I was checking out, and I, just, I really felt like God wanted me to tell you that he loves you. I don't know if that means anything to you, but I just wanted to share that with you. Leaves the store, turns around. This guy's following her out, weeping and crying. He's got a letter in his hand, just weeping. So Tanya goes over and says, are you okay? And he says, no, I'm not. This is my suicide note. I wrote it this morning. I was going to do my gig, and I was going to go home and kill myself. But I'm not now. Are you with me? There is a supernatural side to who God is, and we should wake up every day of our lives with an attitude that says, oh God, would you use me? Find me faithful. Find me faithful. It's dramatic, isn't it? But God wants to move in our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's the the function of Tanya for the rest of her life, right? But all of us are a candidate for God to make himself known to people in the world through all kinds of ways that are in that list, and sometimes through spiritual language. But there's a third way that spiritual language is spoken of here in 1 Corinthians 14, 18. There is the ability to express ourselves to God, right? So we've been talking about God having a message, a prophetic message from him to us through spiritual language. But Paul talks about a a spiritual language. It's it's what we witnessed in Acts chapter 2, where they were all in a place of worship and prayer. That's us communicating back to the Father. There's the ability to express ourselves to God in times of prayer and worship unencumbered by human intellect and earthly language. This is for us all. Paul says right here in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, that I speak in spiritual language, listen to what he says, more than all of you. That means lots of things, but one of the things it most certainly means is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who God chose to give us the majority of the New Testament, had an assumption. I kind of like the assumptions that the Apostle Paul has. He's a pretty credible guy. His assumption was that everybody at the church of Corinth prayed and worshiped in a spiritual language. He said, I speak in a spiritual language more than all of you. 
not just all of them combined when you study the Greek, not just all of them combined, but that every single person, he's saying, I know that you move in a spiritual language in your times of worship and prayer. And he's saying, hey, all of you, I do it myself. There is a great gift so that you never have to say for the rest of your life, God, I just didn't know how to pray. I just couldn't find the words. If you were the creator of the universe, we talked about it last week, why wouldn't you give your children the ability to pray and worship in a way that is completely unencumbered by earthly language and human intellect? All right, this is our last one, and then the worship team's going to come back, and we're going to pray for a little while together. So if I'm not understanding what I'm saying, what's the point, Fred? I mean, come on. So now I can see we're spiritual languages for all of us, but, but, but if I begin to move in this gift that's going to come as I experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit in my own life, if I can't understand what I'm saying, does it really benefit me in any way? You've got great questions. Can I just, you guys are asking great questions tonight. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell someone a special revelation that God has given, and one will speak in tongues or spiritual language, and another will interpret what it says, but everything that is done must strengthen all of you. In some translation, it says edify, which is the word that we get edifice from, which is a building, meaning that all of the gifts of the Spirit that come to us are intended to build us up in the deep parts of who we are. And there is a part of you that is far deeper than your intellect. Far deeper than your intellect. So we, I share this story a couple of times a year. If you've, if you've been here at the church, you've heard it many times before, but it's, for me, the story that illustrates best this idea of spiritual language and when we don't understand what we're saying because Acts of expression always lead to feelings of intimacy, even when you don't understand what's being said. So Derek, when he was, he was born, there were complications with his birth. He was our first, and, and so we're, you know, we're there at the hospital. We're all excited. It's our, it's our first child, and we didn't find out the, the gender of, of either one because we're such control freaks already. We said, come on, we've got to at least do a couple of things in our life where we're not in complete control of every circumstance and situation, right? So we had all these names picked out. We had Claire picked out from the very beginning. So finally, right, three kids later, we were able to use that name as Claire was our, our third. So we don't know if it's going to be Claire. We don't know if it's going to be Derek. So he's trapped in the birth canal. It's a serious situation. The, the NICU unit rushes in, right? All the people that come in for emergency. It's not what you want to experience the first time that you're having a baby. We're, we're a little bit frightened. We're scared. We don't know what's going to happen. So the NICU unit is in there, and they're surrounding Vanessa, and I've got to step away. And so they, they, he's birthed, and he's, he's, he's in trauma, and he swallowed some things that he's not supposed to swallow, right? And so they, they rush him over into this little incubator that's right over in the side of the room. I am telling you, he is screaming, right? Screaming, screaming, screaming. And they're all around him, working on him. And, and uh, I don't recommend that you do this if you've not had any kids yet, so, but I'm, right, I'm his father, I'm tired of sitting on the sidelines, right? So I kind of wiggle my way in. I know that you can't imagine me doing that, right? Pushing them out of the way, and I, and I get down on my knees. Because he's in, he's right, the ink, this, this bassinet, he's in his clear plastic. And his head is right here, and he's looking straight up. Red in the face, he's screaming so loud. And they're working on him and trying to suction all this stuff out so that he can breathe the way that he's supposed to. And then all of a sudden, I just begin to say, hey, Derek, it's your daddy. 
Just begin to say things to him. We've been, your mommy and I have been waiting for this moment for so long. We, and, I just, and as I'm talking, all of a sudden, he just stops crying. And he does this. <laughs> Under half of my kingdom, it belongs to you right now, right? <laughs> and the medical staff, they just look at each other and they just stop, right? Because they witnessed something that was absolutely profound. He did not understand a word that I was saying, but he knew that I was his father. I am telling you there is a part of you that God wants to touch, that he wants you to begin to speak out from, and he wants to begin to speak into you. And you might not understand a bit of what you're saying, but in that moment, you could care less because there's something deep inside of you that is connecting with your creator that there is no earthly language that's ever been created that could ever express. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we step into a time of worship together. Come on, we've got some time. We designed the service this way on purpose. If you've been asked to set up for prayer, if you could move to the sides of the people with the lights, you can go ahead and bring those down for the, for the worship set. And, 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 and this is what my encouragement to you. This is my encouragement to you tonight. It might be that, that you've never stepped into a moment where, 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 where you've asked people to pray for you before. Come on, tonight should be that night where you do it for the very first time. People, we're, we're setting up off to the side on purpose uh, so that across the front here, across the front here, that, that uh, um, if you just want some time to yourself, then you feel free to find a place at this altar. But on either side, on either side, if you want someone to pray with you, especially if you're here tonight, and you've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you've never experienced what we've been talking about for the last two weeks, I'm just going to invite you, I'm just going to invite you tonight to say, you know what? I want to experience everything that God has for me. And everybody that's over there tonight is ready to pray for you. Come on, that this could be your Acts chapter 2 moment. Come on, let's worship together.